Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, we feature an online panel discussion I did with Arun Kajarawal of Facebook and Ira Cohen of Anadot. And full disclosure, I am an advisor to Anadot. So as much as we talk about AI and uh, computer vision, speech technologies, autonomous vehicles and things like that, the reality is in many companies, they still have a lot of structured data. And one form of structured data is time series and temporal data. And so our panel discussion was focused on techniques for unlocking such data sets. So specifically, the panel that we conducted focused on anomaly detection and forecasting. And both Arun and Ira have extensive experience building analytic and machine learning solutions at very large scale. And both of them have worked extensively with time series because it turns out that time series data, they actually require somewhat specific techniques that maybe uh, data scientists who don't work with them routinely are not familiar with. And just as a reminder, Arun and Ira do this very popular joint session at our AI conferences where they talk about sequence-to-sequence modeling for time series forecasting. And they will be part of a very strong slate of sessions on AI for temporal data and time series at the Artificial Intelligence Conference in London this coming October. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. The first question is why care about anomaly detection at all? And who should you be looking to in your business to drive an anomaly detection initiative? So, Ira, you want to take sure. a stab at answering these questions? Sure. And, uh, and of course, I'm going to give it from the perspective of, uh, of the, some of the work that uh, we do with our customers and what we see them getting value out of. So really, the type of anomaly detection we are looking at is on time series data. And what is a time series? It's a lot of different measurements that you have from your business. Uh, and there are the measurements are, you know, they start from the revenue and how many visitors you have on your site and uh, how many people are buying on your on your e-commerce site. And it could be your telcos uh, looking at uh, how many calls are being made and how many calls are being dropped. And a lot of examples from industry, I think we can we can show I have a slide here. So the type of incidents that you find using anomaly detection in an organization are, you know, cost a lot of money to organizations. So Gartner said that an incident costs on average $300,000 an hour if you're a large enterprise. 7% reduction in your latency already creates a big gap in, in revenue. 100 milliseconds basically creates 7% loss of revenue or takes 31 hours a week lost to incidents in organizations. So it costs a lot of money to have incidents. And anomaly detection has really been the way, the new way using machine learning to find all these incidents as fast as possible before they cost so much. So that's really the type of uh, things. And we have, you know, there are plenty of examples I can give from our customers, but of course I can't share them. But there are a lot of them that you can see out there that are published. And 
you know, if we go to the next slide, then I actually prepared a few examples. For example, you know, just recently, a Dutch emergency line was hit by a telco outage, which cost a lot of money in, in reputation, of course. App stores, applications going down, Target was hit by outages that cost them millions of dollars. So these type of failures, if they're not detected quickly and fixed quickly, then they tend to cost quite a lot of money to any company. And anybody running a business, especially online businesses, know that this is very costly. All right. It's good to kind of put in context why even care about anomaly detection yeah. and to also kind of emphasize that anomaly detection applies to businesses that collect metrics, which is basically every business and doesn't necessarily have to be confined to IT metrics, as Ira has emphasized, it could be business metrics. So now let's uh, try to be more specific as to what it is that we're talking about here. So uh, Arun, can you help us kind of narrow down the scope of what is an anomaly detection system? Sure. So, I mean, as Ben said, that anomaly detection need not be limited to IT metrics. It can also be business metrics. And let me give you a specific example. So back at Twitter, where we developed one of the early techniques, there were many business metrics or KPIs, you know, such as number of tweets per second, or number of followers per second, or number of retweets per second. So these are business metrics. And if you see a sudden drop uh, from what you typically expect, then that uh, constitutes an anomaly. So at a high level, an anomaly corresponds to a deviation from an expected pattern. Of course, there are a lot of details which uh, one needs to dive into. So we uh, employed or we developed novel techniques to be able to detect any anomaly in a business metric or in our uh, inframetrics uh, for that matter. Why automated? So the key thing is that historically, people have been uh, detecting these anomalies via dashboards. Now, if you attend conferences such as uh, O'Reilly AI or, or O'Reilly Starter Data, it is pretty routine for speakers from leading companies such as Facebook, Netflix, Google, and so on and so forth to share that in the interest of observability, they monitor hundreds of millions of time series. Now, at that scale, it's practically not viable to have to monitor and detect anomalies via dashboarding. So that uh, necessitates organically to build automated anomaly detection, whereby you detect anomalies algorithmically, then marry that with the context and only surface those which warrant action. So if I can add maybe to, to what Arun said. So yeah, I've seen it also my previous companies. The way people detect anomalies uh, today or basically detect unusual situation. What is an anomaly? An anomaly is something unexpected that happens. And in the context of a business, it's an incident or an opportunity that if you don't pay attention to it, uh, it might cost you or you have a missed opportunity. Uh, and the way, as Arun said, the way traditionally... Uh, it's been done is either having sitting, people sitting down in front of dashboards all day long and actually looking for those unusual situations, but that doesn't scale. And when you have hundreds of millions, I think Facebook has billions of these time series collected all the time. So that's one way. And the other way is to try to create uh, alerts uh, and, and static alerts, uh, basically saying if it crosses some threshold, then send me a notification because I can't just look at everything. So that tends to work in either very small scale where you know your data really well, or if you have 
a very good understanding of what those thresholds should be. For example, if I'm monitoring a server, I know my CPU should not reach 100%. Let me detect, let me find whenever it crosses 90%. Or my disk space has, cannot be uh, more than 95% full, otherwise it might reach its capacity. Uh, but when you're talking about a lot of application, KPIs or time series, uh, business metrics, it's really not clear what those thresholds are. There isn't really a good way to know. But people have still have done a lot of automatic thresholding using static thresholds. That tends to create a lot, a lot of false positives or missed, missed detections. Uh, and it also becomes a system that you have to maintain very, very constantly and very hard to do. So how does anomaly detection IRA relate to machine learning? Ah, so that's a, that's a great question. So basically, anomaly detection is a field in machine learning, right? It uses a lot of the algorithms for machine learning. It's an unsupervised machine learning area, and it's basically looking for the outliers. So the way I like to think of it, uh, if in unsupervised learning you do clustering, oftentimes this is the extra step of saying, oh, something is not related to any common cluster that I can find in my data. And now the question is, how do you define a cluster? And that depends on the type of data that you have. If it's a time series, then you have to model it one way. If it's static data or non-time related data, then you use other techniques. But it's basically part of what we call unsupervised learning. I also think of it as something that even in other parts of machine learning, you need to apply in order to get good training, for example. If I'm a machine learning practitioner and I get a training set to do even a supervised task, I might want to discover my anomalies in the data so it doesn't bias or corrupt my, uh, my training data. But that's another area of anomaly detection. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, uh, that's an area I'm super interested in around uh, basically data quality, data cleaning, Yep. These, these sorts of things. So Arun, uh, so what are some of the common techniques that people should uh, be looking towards implementing if they're, for example, getting started? Yeah, so as uh, Ida mentioned that in most cases, one should explore using unsupervised techniques to build anomaly detection system because in a real world scenario, it's very hard to get labels and hence leveraging any supervised learning-based techniques is not viable. Now talking about uh, in the unsupervised realm, there is a pretty extensive literature, but to get started, there are very simple techniques such as mean plus minus three sigma. So it's just as a starter, one can leverage rules like these. These are still far better than using a static threshold because mean and standard deviation, they are function of the underlying distribution. Now, having said that, there are many underlying assumptions, which a simple rule like mean plus minus three sigma makes. So it's very important that even when one uses off-the-shelf rules or techniques like these, that the underlying assumptions are validated. So for instance, in this case, it assumes that the time series is stationary. It is assumed that there is no seasonality and it assumes a normal distribution. So these assumptions should be validated. Otherwise, you may end up with false positives or false negatives. So actually, uh, you know, I wanted to add to what Arun said. So of course, there are a lot of unsupervised techniques. And one of the questions that Arun alluded to is why not use supervised techniques? 
And when we talked about in the intro, how do they get to anomaly detection? I actually, when I started my work at HP, we faced a similar problem, but I wanted to solve it using supervised techniques, meaning I wanted to know, I mean, I know that if I do supervise and I have enough labels, the chances of me catching things and measuring how accurate I am is much better than unsupervised techniques because there, the target is not very clear and you make a lot of assumptions on your data, as Arun said. The problem is, that in a lot of the cases that we're talking about, there aren't really, there isn't a way to get labels of anomalies. And what I found when I tried to do this, and I tried to do it for a year, questioning people around IT, more the IT domain, questioning what are the common anomalies that happen in the world? Let me find those, label them, and train a supervised model and maybe capture 80% of things. But I quickly found out that there aren't a good way to capture these labels from people because all these systems that we're monitoring, all these applications, when they work okay, they all look alike. But they st when they start becoming faulty or there are all sorts of things that go wrong, everything that goes wrong may look different than others. So it's very hard to actually even get the top 10 cases of things falling apart. So it's like Dostoevsky's book, you know, good families all look alike, but broken families are all different. And this is the same way with what we're dealing with, which is why we have to go to these unsupervised techniques and learn what is normal because that is possible and then find these abnormal patterns out of those. Let's jump into the next section, which is basically system requirements of a successful anomaly detection system. So here we'll, we'll just kind of have a free-flowing discussion and Ira and Arun, feel free to jump in. But basically, what are some of the requirements that you think are critical for people. And I think uh, we also should probably uh, factor in that the, the audience here is, has many different entry points. Some probably are just getting started. And as we noted in the raise your hands earlier, some have already begun building anomaly detection systems. So requirements, Arun, you want to take a first stab? Sure. So as the audience also highlighted that real time and scale are pretty key to any detection system which one may want to use in a industry environment. As data availability becomes more and more ubiquitous, you know, there'll be more and more data streams which will be flowing through the system. So to be able to extract anomalies in real time so that appropriate action can be taken will hold key. So for instance, we had Amazon Prime Day yesterday and the day before. So imagine that if you are at Amazon Prime and then there are certain products which are selling like hotcakes, then Amazon would want to know there are these trending items so that they can revamp their inventory in time and minimize the lost sales. So surfacing these real-time insights is very important and scale goes without saying that if you are a big enterprise, you know, being able to scale um, because you are monitoring hundreds of millions of time series is also very critical. Let me actually interject myself here quickly. So when we talk about real time, there's a notion of being able to process the data in real time, surface anomalies in real time. But Ira and I guess Arun as well, what about the ability to uh, adapt and learn from a possible new changes in the state of the world? So real time or online learning? I think that is actually critical, especially for this type of systems measuring businesses. If you're measuring system metrics or business metrics, that state of the world changes and you have to have algorithms that are able to adapt quickly enough, detect the anomalies on one hand, but adapt to changes in the world 
fast enough to be able to catch new situations. It relates to the false positive, false negatives as well, because the most important thing in the poll, people shared are false positives. And I think this is really the perception we also see. False positives is something critical to minimize because like any system that you might must act on, if it tells you something that is wrong and you waste time on it, then you lose your confidence and, and you start stopping using it. Uh, and that happens a lot in the old static threshold because people get tons of alerts and get alert fatigue. So adapting to changes that are happening in the world is critical to reduce false positives and to still be able to catch the right things. And changes happen a lot in businesses. They're not closed systems that are designed once, built once, and are known to operate in the same way like, a, like a, let's say, an airplane engine or a big machine. It keeps changing, so it has to adapt. It has to use new data constantly to change what it knows about the world. So Arun, are there different types of anomaly detection systems? Is there a simple taxonomy that people should yeah. keep in mind? As we had one of the earlier slides, uh, broadly speaking, one can either employ uh, techniques rooted in statistical learning or machine learning or deep learning. There is a vast amount of literature in all the three subdomains. And I, as I mentioned earlier that Anomalies manifest in different forms. You know, it can be from astronomy to manufacturing to operations or networking or what you have. So it has been studied for more than a century. Now, this relates, that taxonomy relates to the third bullet uh, here we have on the slide, which is explainability. So the selection of the technique should be guided by your use case. You know, someone working in academia trying to, uh, or some pursuing research in anomaly detection system is probably all right to just surface anomalies and show that it is that the false positive rate is lower than state of the art and then move on. But for instances like what Anodot deals with because they have real clients, you know, explainability is very important. So from my own personal experience back at Machine Zone, we used to dispute fraud in our marketing campaigns. So fraud is, uh, for the benefit of the audience, is one of the most rampant pain points uh, in the realm of digital marketing. So whenever we used to surface fraud, it was imperative that we could explain why what we have surfaced is, is indeed fraudulent. So explainability to our ad partners was pivotal to get the money back. So, and that's where, you know, approaches like deep learning, which have shown a lo lot of promise in different, in other domains, such as uh, speech synthesis or audio to text, uh, text to audio uh, conversion and so on and so forth. In the realm of anomaly detection, when you're deploying it in a, in an industry context, they, they tend to fall short because there is lack of interpretability slash explainability. There is, although there has been recent work or recent focus on improving the explainability of uh, deep learning models, but they still have a way to go. So uh, leveraging the taxonomy, depending on the use case, can be very helpful. Yeah, I think that another aspect of that, besides explainability, is the fifth bullet, I think, multivariate or univariate. So actually, you can have a full multivariate technique where you have a model that learns normal based on the inputs from many, many different sensors. And then its output is, there is, I found an anomaly in all these sensors or not. The problem with that approach, that if you need to explain why it said that was an anomaly, it can be very, very challenging to do it. As opposed, for example, to univariate techniques that look at time series 
each time series as its own variable and find anomalies in them, those are easier to explain because you can show, oh, here, this time series value is now outside the norm and I can, I can draw the norm for you so you can see it and what I mean by normal. And that's really a lot of, it relates to the explainability as well. And it kind of hampers the ability to use some multivariate techniques or deeper techniques like deep learning in some cases, some use cases of anomaly detection. There are other use cases, as Arun mentioned, that you, know, you can use the multivariate techniques because you don't necessarily need to explain the outcome. Maybe there is an automated action taking after an outcome that says there is an anomaly. As long as it's mapped out correctly beforehand, you can take those, those actions. So it really depends on the use case. There is a lot of different techniques that you can use based on uh, whether you need to explain it or not. So what about, i uh, recently been uh, thinking a lot about infrastructure ecosystem around machine learning itself, for which obviously a lot of that will feed into anomaly detection. So there people are starting to think about tools for model governance, model operations. So obviously uh, in a system like Anadot, you can have many, many models out there in production. And so what sorts of best practices do you have in terms of introducing new models, retiring old models, or basically QAing uh, new models, right? So before you even introduce them to your system. So how do you know that these new techniques that Arun mentioned around deep learning are even worth the cost of deployment. All right. So I can talk about some of the models we have, and maybe Arun can speak about some of his background around it. So when we have models that we want to deploy, there is, of course, the whole phase of, of developing it and testing it on some data that we put aside. But let's say we passed all of that, and that is there are a lot of best practices for that. Uh, if we pass all of that, then we still have to deploy these models into production and then send them on their way and see what happens. The only way that we found to actually make sure that they still function in production is to monitor them directly as well and actually use anomaly detection to find when they're starting to behave differently than before. I'll give you an example, not from Anadot. It's an example I really like to give for other types of machine learning algorithms. I think in December, there was a glitch in the Google ads, one of their software for ads, that actually there was some bug in their training software and their algorithm, their bidding algorithm started bidding on many, many ads on the internet and actually won a lot of them because it was really bidding way too high. And basically these bidding algorithms, they are usually based on machine learning techniques. And if something goes wrong with that model that is now doing actual bidding, it's going to overbid or uh, create a lot of wrong bids in wrong places. It's going to cost a lot of money to Google. It actually costs, I read in the articles, anywhere from a million dollars to $10 million in one hour of that glitch. And the way to catch it is to actually monitor what these models are doing and catching when they are starting to behave differently. And this is the anomaly detection. So what you see here uh, on the slide is actually an example of a time series that you might measure, could be revenue. And what you're seeing here on the screen is how do we learn what is normal about it? So we start out by very wide distribution in the beginning of the time series, because we don't know what happens with it. Eventually, we realize that there is some seasonal pattern to it, first daily, then weekly. And then we have a very good understanding of the normal behavior and we can detect anomalies. Now, to your question, when you're 
tracking your machine learning models in production, they're actually going to produce a lot of these time series. Some may look like this one, some may look differently, may have different behaviors, non-stationary, stationary behaviors, but they are still going to exhibit some normal pattern. And that's the way to, that's the way we found is the best way to track them. And it's very similar to tracking your business. I mean, when I think of machine learning models and their governance, uh, machine learning models in production, running in production, they're like, uh, I think somebody from Gartner or Forrester called them AI workers. So they are just like any other part of uh, the working environment of something constantly taking actions and making decisions based on input data that it gets. So you have to monitor just like you monitor the performance of any worker. You know, there's also the argument and the philosophy, and in some regulated industries, even very strong guidelines around how you organize your teams. In other words, uh, you may have uh, one team that develops the anomaly detection system and one completely independent team that just makes sure that it's correct, ready to go, and it monitors it. Arun, I wanted to actually uh, very quickly get your take since you've mostly been on the side of someone who either builds or evaluates these systems. So any kind of high-level advice for our listeners as to how you would evaluate an anomaly detection system if you were on the side of someone who is deciding whether or not to use a specific anomaly detection system, what are some of the things you would look for? You know, the devil is always in the details. So if I were to evaluate an anomaly detection system is to get a feel for what are the different models they support, and more importantly, that what are the underlying assumptions of the uh, models make, and are those assumptions satisfied by the data at hand? So now, like a company like Anodot, who has invested a lot of time and effort in building such a system. So it's not particularly relevant or needed to dive into the technical details, but as long as as a potential user of such a system, you know, as long as like basically doing a due diligence that the product actually validates the assumptions of the models, the model makes with the data. And if, if it is so, and the other thing is that one model doesn't fit all. So that's one of the nice things about a system like Anadot, that they have an ensemble of models. They don't uh, rely on a single model because the data characteristics are very different on the data source. So making sure that there is an ensemble of models so that final recommendation of the system will be much more robust than using one or two models. So let's say, Arun, you're on the uh, technical evaluation team, right? So now you kick the tires on the system. Now you have to convince some business decision makers. How would you go about uh, convincing them that a system is solid and good? And so it's just where kind of a system's ability to explain how decisions are being made becomes important. So what are some of the things that are critical technical teams who want to convince uh, their business decision makers? So that's a great question. You know, so, so yeah, if you roll back time, let's say I was still at Twitter and then if we were evaluating a system to find anomalies in business metrics, then, you know, we would pilot the system and we'll see that, okay, how many times that whenever we had a, an incident or uh, there was some other, uh, due to some other uh, reason, our business metrics nose dive or there was a sudden spike, maybe because of DDoS attack. How often, how many times was the system under evaluation was able to detect? And what, what was the business value? You know, so 
was it able to catch the key instances where our business could have been impacted materially? So that would make a very convincing business argument that look for the smaller incidents, even you know it's not as material, but for the bigger ones, uh, like if you are at Amazon and you expect sales of north of hundred million, but you see that hey for the first six hours my sales are only two million, so it's a negative anomaly, and the system was able to catch it, you know. So that would be a very convincing case that look our business was getting impacted uh, in a material fashion. And the system was able to catch it. And obviously, I think, I guess, Ira, there's certain operating requirements, right? So the ability to integrate, ease of getting started. So how easy is it to feed data into the system? How soon before I get results and things like that? Yeah, I mean, so so yeah, when we designed uh, kind of the system, then you know we had to think about a lot of things from the algorithmic and product requirement. What does it actually have to have before it becomes really useful? So minimizing false positive, as Paul said, is obvious. There was another part that 40% said it's important, which is scale. And the way I think about scale, and this is part of the requirements, both from the algorithm, but also from the product itself, scalability is not just the ability to process a lot of data and process it fast in real time, but also to do this processing and analysis and finding of anomalies without any human intervention. Because if you're collecting millions of these time series and you want to find anomalies in all of them, if you start asking people questions, oh, what is this uh, time series? Is this stationary or not? Is this uh, seasonal? Yes or no? Then you can't really scale with that. So scalability is both from the algorithm perspective, being really autonomous, learning everything that it can by itself as much as possible with minimum to zero human intervention. And then the product requirement around that is to have the ability to explain what the algorithms found. So finding an anomaly without explaining it, without having a product or having some way to explain why it was an anomaly, and usually the way to explain it is using using some visualization, show a graph with a normal how it looks normally and then show that it's outside, it's very easy for us as humans to understand why it was an anomaly. So from the algorithm perspective, being very autonomous, being able to cope with a lot of different types of data distribution or data distribution of seasonal patterns, you know, adapting to varying situations, all of those are critical. And then from the product is being able to show the result in a way that the user, any user can understand it, why it said so. And that's really a lot of the requirements we put ourselves and scale is one of them. And scale, actually, the algorithms and the scale of them uh, feeds into minimizing false positives, scale feeds into being able to do it in real time. So that's, uh, that's part of the requirements. I don't know, maybe Arun, when you were working on the Twitter open source uh, or before it became an open source, did you get requirements from the business of what it should be? No, it's... The requirements are essentially what you just outlined, that in the infrastructure space, you know, think, I mean, if we put ourselves in the shoes of a SRE, you know, an SRE would not want to get a uh, false positive uh, pager at three in the morning. If it happens even twice, you know, the, the SRE is not going to use the system, you know, going forward. So minimizing false positives is extremely important in that context. Now, the flip side is, let's say if you have, if you deploy the system in healthcare space, then you would rather have false positives than false negatives because false negative. If you have false negatives, you know you're putting someone's life at risk. You know, so it is very context dependent. So yeah, back at Twitter, false positives was deep 
like minimizing false positives was the key requirement because otherwise you will have very low adoption and then of course it has to be more real time that if the system catches an anomaly which is indeed anomaly and warrants action and but if you only suffice it 2 hours later than the actual incident then uh, that uh, would uh, result in a very poor user experience you know people are not able to tweet or retweet and you don't want that incident to prolong for 2 hours so timeliness is very important all right so we have a few sessions left i want to go through these fast because i do want to get through some of the questions from the audience so first uh, uh, resources so arun uh, what are the resources needed to support successful implementation in terms of people and budget uh, are there any open source tools that are available so to get started you know uh, there are a lot of resources available out there currently in the realm of unsupervised learning the default languages people use is either python or r so there are plenty of packages in both languages and in fact language is not a barrier r is more popular in statistics python in cs but you can use packages like rpy2 to call a r package from python so there are a lot of packages in both languages one can leverage to get started and then people who are considering buying a system from a vendor or a cloud provider it's also not just a question of budget but processes as well right so you have to have a process for how to evaluate systems or even models from third parties yeah that's a good point so this relates to what we discussed earlier that uh, to have integration support that are there apis which these vendors support and uh, as ira mentioned that being able to explain why an anomaly is an anomaly via dashboarding so if you have if someone has 10000 time series can uh, the dashboard surface only relevant time series which are actionable and then highlight why it, it is anomalous that is very critical for evaluating the system so someone which doesn't have a rich set of apis or connectors to different data sources be it kafka be it hive or or what or pulsar that would be very limiting so i right i bet you get this question a lot right so which is basically yeah. your system is cool but maybe we'll just build it ourselves. Yeah, so that's always a valid question. So what we've seen or what I've seen over the past uh, five years and even before that, so it's, it's quite easy to get something going, something working on some of the data using a lot of these open sources. You still, in my opinion, need to have, if you want to seriously build a system that can handle both scale and a wide variety of signals, you need to have data scientists that understand time series on board it's not uh, so they, under, they have to understand this unsupervised techniques and understand the special thing about time series as opposed to non time series anomaly detection so the time series means that you have to have models that take into account temporal dynamics of what you're measuring if you don't take into account temporal dynamics in some way within your algorithms you're actually losing out and you're going to create a, very, a lot of false positives and temporal dynamics is not easy to catch now the way we've seen it and, and we've seen a few examples of companies that a lot of them are our clients today uh that you know started out as small startups when they were in startup mode you know they did not invest anything in anything related to anomaly detection uh, maybe some basic alerting and dashboarding but it's okay as long as you have you know a lot a lot of data uh, your incident cost is probably uh, a lot less than what you're making and you don't have time or resources to invest in anything uh, so you're just you're just handling it and then we've seen that you know after the first year year and a half you start getting 
critical issue that costs you a lot. You know, then the CEO and everybody starts getting nervous, but then it gets fixed and, you know, things move along until the next big one comes. Usually something that is overlooked, something not, you know, it doesn't start as a major outage, but it starts as something much smaller and then, you know, kind of slowly creates a big damage. And you lose a lot of money and then everybody freaks, the board freaks, everybody freaks out. And they want, And now comes the moment that you decide to build something. And at that point, you have a decision. You can start building your, your own. You can buy from a vendor. If you decide to build, then you have to create a team around it with a data scientist or two or three, depending on the size of the company, how ambitious the plan is, developers, you know, Back end, you need some testing, you need somebody to define the product. If you're serious about it, and that takes time and costs money, uh, and at that time you're spending money, but it's not solving your incident, so you still lose money, and you hope you don't get another big one before you finish it. Unfortunately, a lot of times people think of it as a project that starts and ends, and not as a product that you have to keep and maintain because you're building a product for internal product to do something just like you would any other internal product. And if you don't continue to invest in it, when the project is done, you end up seeing that it doesn't work. And we've seen it happening a lot of times uh, where it worked on some data, it worked in the lab, it worked in the, well, the development of the product, it works on a small subset of the data. But then if the investment doesn't continue constantly, it's not a project, it's a product. So you have to continue. And, and, to and there's also, I think, a question for data scientists. So in, in terms of, like you said, so first of all, uh, it's a somewhat of a specialized topic, temporal dynamics and time series. But also data scientists might start questioning, should I be working on this or should I be working on something that business people in my company really care about, right? So whatever right. the core business it is that we're involved in, be it finance or logistics, maybe I should be using my machine learning skills directly for the business. So let's jump to the next section. And here I want really brief answers because I do want to get to some of the questions. So one minute each. Of course, the big topic of this uh, webinar is anomaly detection, but I think actually an equally massive topic for businesses these days is forecasting and forecasting of all sorts, right? So nowadays, demand forecasting for retailers and logistics providers, everyone is thinking about forecasting. So will these, any of these uh, topics or things that we talked about or systems that uh, we've built do any of these help me with forecasting? So one minute each, Arun. Yeah, sure. So this is a very tightly coupled topic with uh, anomaly detection. Any business, you know, be it business metrics like uh, your traffic volume or your sales, you know, and if you're a public company, then you need to provide guidance to the Wall Street. And forecasting is very intimately tied to anomaly detection because the data you're using, your forecast is as good as the model, but also the data. So if your data, historical data has a lot of anomalies, your fidelity of your forecast will be pretty low. So it's very common that before you employ the state-of-the-art forecasting technique, whatever it may be, that you cleanse your data by leveraging uh, anomaly detection techniques to ensure that the input to your forecasting algorithm is clean of anomalies. Otherwise, your forecast uh, would not be as robust. Ira, one minute. Yeah, so basically a lot of the techniques that find anomalies are also are, are forecasting techniques because what are they doing? They're learning the normal pattern and they're saying, okay, I expect the normal pattern in an hour or in a day or in a minute to be this. And then 
if the, when the data arrives and it's not based on that forecast, that's an anomaly. That's the definition of that anomaly in that sense. So the techniques are tightly coupled. And the interesting part is what Arun said correctly, and I couldn't agree more, is that, you know, the, when, you're, when you're trying to train forecasting models, the anomalies in your data can really hurt how you train your forecasting models, the accuracy of those forecasting models. And we've seen a lot of examples of that with lots of different types of data, but well, you have to do something. As a reminder, Arun Kajariwal and Ira Cohen are giving a talk, which is part of a strong slate of sessions on AI for temporal data and time series at the upcoming Artificial Intelligence Conference in London. You can follow Arun Kajariwal and Ira Cohen on Twitter at Arun underscore Kajariwal and at Ira Ira Cohen, respectively. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.